So after our little break, we're thrilled that our first guest is an old friend, but someone who's very young and a budding superstar in the world of sovereign debt, Josephine Meyer. Josephine, I, I hope I pronounced your name correctly. Uh, yeah. But welcome. Uh, I, I had the privilege to work with Josephine uh, some years ago on a paper with my Duke colleague, Elizabeth de Fontenay, and uh, it was on the obscure question of why sovereigns ever listed their bonds. But Josephine has moved beyond us and is now doing wonderful work with some uh, truly amazing scholar. I get uh, dragged in in the slipstream of the scholars she is working with now, and they are doing some pretty amazing work. So uh, my first question about this, this paper, that new paper that Josephine Carmen Reinhardt and uh, Christoph Trebesch have put out, Sovereign Bonds After Waterloo, is about its very intriguing sounding core finding, which is that sovereign bonds provide excess returns. If one looks at the data, even the bonds of serial defaulters like Argentina, which suggests to me as a humble lawyer that, you know, I need to go out and uh, buy a whole bunch of crappy sovereign bonds because the returns are much higher than people think. Like for example, Lebanese bonds that are in the toilet right now. Josephine, um, am I completely misreading the bottom line of your paper? Hi Mito, so first of all, thank you very much for having me uh, and thank you for the nice introduction. Um, no, I don't think so that you misread our paper. So um, as you, as you summarized, uh, what we could see is that we find uh, steadily high returns over the last 200 years, especially um, for nowadays, uh, for, for nowadays. And um, so, sorry, um, uh, could you just repeat please your question? I, I, I got lost. Oh, no, no worries. My question was that the paper suggests, the abstract at least, um, that, that there are excess returns on sovereign debt. And, you know, just colloquially, the term excess returns seems to suggest to me that I can get more from investing in sovereign bonds than uh, in other assets. And I, I was wondering whether that was the correct reading of the bottom line of the paper or whether this is a more sort of nuanced result that is a function of other results in finance. Okay, thank you. So yeah, sure. So I mean, maybe um, just, to, just to briefly summarize the paper. So um, as you already said, we compute the excess return of of a newly constructed global external sovereign bond portfolio in uh, in comparison to the return of a risk-free asset. So, and as a risk-free asset, we use, yeah, 
as it commonly done, either UK or the US uh, 10 year treasury bonds or um, uh, the UK, US three months treasury bills. So that means um, the excess returns in our paper or which we state in our paper, which varies across time between um, four to six percent, states how much actually the global external sovereign bond portfolio outperform relative to this, to this benchmark, right? So, and, and especially for nowadays, we find these kind of high excess returns of uh, uh, 6%. And uh, what you need to, to, to reconsider or what you need to, to, rem uh, um, what you need to, rem to remind is that we actually construct a portfolio of bonds. So that is not basically one single bond which, which yield these kind of high excess returns, but the entire portfolio uh, leads to these kind of high excess returns. So, uh, Josephine, again, forgive me for um, the very simplistic question, but just to understand how you think about, how we think about what the expected returns are from a conventional uh, finance perspective, and then how you decide what an excess return is. Here's how I understand the basics. The basics would be that the return on a sovereign bond should be basically the risk-free return that you have on a U.S. Treasury uh, or a German Bund. And then you add in the, the return that compensates for the risk of default. So if we're thinking about the bonds of El Salvador or the bonds of Argentina or Dominican Republic, there's, uh, unlike the German Bund or the US Treasury, there's some risk of default. So we add in the risk of default uh, and reduce uh, the expected returns. And then um, that's how we calculate what we should expect uh, from this bond. And what you are finding is that uh, the returns are actually uh, higher than that. There, there is uh, something akin to, uh, I, I think the famous paper was by Mera and Prescott. There, there's something akin to an, uh, the equity premium puzzle that they had. You have a sovereign debt premium puzzle. Is, is that, uh, if yeah. I'm... Yeah, so, so basically, um, yeah, of, co of course, I mean, um, so uh, the excess return, um, which would be above like a risk-free uh, risk rate, uh, should uh, compromise you or would, should co uh, compromise you for additional risk, uh, which is associated to the certain asset classes as, for instance, um, a higher credit risk or default risk, and also a higher liquidity risk, right? And what we find in our paper is basically that, of course, this higher excess return is relates also to a higher risk in terms of higher liquidity risk. So for instance, the risk um, that this market can dry out um, during defaults, but also due, due to a higher default risk as it would be the case, for instance, for um, US uh, treasury bonds. However, if you would account, or if you would uh, compare this excess return to the actual realized uh, credit risk uh, in terms of uh, realized default risk, uh, uh, realized default rates, and also um, in comparison um, to uh, creditor losses, 
um, greater losses, we find actually, or I would say we find like indicative evidence that this excess return is higher than we would uh, than we would assume given the realized defaults and given also the uh, realized uh, recovery rates, which are on average over the entire period, uh, well, or over the entire 200 year horizon um, is roughly um, 50%. And even for nowadays, if we would just account for uh, the bond restructurings um, would lie around 67%. So which I would assume is quite high or the recovery is uh, rate is quite quite high, and 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 given uh, given uh, given given these facts, it seems that what, for instance, models always or sovereign default models um, in general assume that so investors are risk neutral. Um, we provide, I would say, a preliminary evidence that there might be another contributing factor to these excess returns besides like. The, uh, the fundamental risk properties, as for instance, default so, risk so or liquidity risk. Yes. Can, hmm? I think um, we're going to want, and, I, and I'm sorry to, to intrude, I, um, I was hoping to take our conversation in a slightly different direction for a moment, okay. only because um, uh, I think we'll both me too and I as non-experts have an, uh, some technical questions we wanted to ask, but I wanted to ask a kind of non-technical question first. As I understand the core finding here is sort of reframed in my terms. It's that, you know, in a, I would have assumed that in a perfectly efficient market, you know, the, the, risk premium that investors get should compensate them for the risk. But your paper strongly implies that investors are being substantially overcompensated for the risk that they're bearing by, um, by investing in a portfolio of sovereign bonds. And I'm just, I'm wondering about the implications of that finding, assuming I'm understanding it correctly. You know, um, it's very common in this and other lending markets, you know, whenever some kind of intervention is proposed, um, often a, a intervention related to debt relief you know, to make it easier to restructure or something. The, the standard response by investors is, well, we're just not gonna invest anymore. We're gonna take our ball and go home and you'll never see us again. Um, it seems to me that one implication of your finding is that an investor would be crazy to abandon this market. Um, and maybe even that sovereign should take a much tougher negotiating position at the, at the time of a restructuring. Am I, am I reading too much into the potential implications of the paper? Well, I think um, not, no. So I think, I think, um, it's one way to interpret interpret our our results, and um, I think what is um, what is important uh, to emphasize is um, that that what I already said that typically um, the models or the typically um, um, default uh, sovereign default models assume uh, risk neutral investors, so that basically um, the excess return should reflect um, um, the expected loss from default. However, um, 
as we show is that this ex that there seems to be some kind of um, yeah what you call it overcompensation and um, therefore um, this this direction or um, this results points more into the direction um, that maybe um, investors investors cannot be be received as risk neutral neutral but maybe um, as for instance risk averse so. Um, risk averse in terms of um, that they um, that they would assume a much higher uh, loss than actually uh, it was realized or it is uh, it is realized in in in, um, in history and uh, with regard to the other question whether detours should be more aggressive <laughs> so. Um, I think probably uh, the question when, when it so the question when it comes to uh, sovereign sovereign debt restructurings and how and how costs of of, it, um, of of the restructuring outcome should be distributed between creditors and debtors, I think the question should be more not more or should be more focused on um, how um, how big should be actually the haircut um, or. How large should be the haircut, um, so that as a result, um, uh, sovereign debt can be um, can be reached again a sustainable path, right? So, um, and uh, what we, for instance, also find in the paper is that, um, um, and also what we um, uh, what we specify in our Vox uh, EU column is that, uh, for example, default uh, that in the default waves we see, for instance. Uh, serious structurings, right? So as in the 1930s, but also in the 1980s, um, we see that uh, external investors and detour countries uh, were able to conclude permanent agreements that um, uh, or that um, they uh, they often um, um, that they often face serious structurings before they are able to to conclude a permanent agreement. Uh, Agreement that uh, that helps to um, to bring the detour country again on the sustainable uh, path of the debt dynamics. And as an example, just for instance, uh, Poland in the 1980s they underwent like eight restructurings uh, before before we can see uh, restructuring that considered as being final, at least final in that sense that there will be no default in the next subsequent years. So, Josephine, can I just, uh, just to uh, be, uh, just to get some clarity on some of the really interesting points that you made in response to Mark, uh, one point that I, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about is, has to do with uh, our assumptions about uh, the risk uh, preferences of the investors and the implications of your paper. So, you had said, if I understand correctly, that maybe our assumptions of uh, risk neutrality, and you know, I think that comes out of sort of thinking that these investors have a highly diversified portfolio, may not be correct. Maybe they're more risk averse, and I'm wondering whether how 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 likely that is. So at least in the New York uh, sovereign bond market, the, the investors are almost all big institutions. And uh, they, they have, I mean, they're huge, uh, have 
billions of dollars in assets and presumably are highly diversified. So uh, that, that, if I understand correctly, is the classic risk-neutral uh, investor. Now, if we find that they're getting returns that are more than what you would expect in a market of risk-neutral investors, then maybe that tells us something very interesting about the, the investor base, or maybe it tells us that uh, there's some kind of market glitch or market failure that is allowing uh, investors to get excess returns. So I'm wondering, I mean, you and Christoph and uh, Carmen must have thought a lot about this, and I'm guessing uh, your referees probably asked about this. So I'd, I'd love to hear uh, what you think is going on. Um, so, I mean, yeah, we were thinking about it and I think our conclusion is basically that um, this can be uh, related uh, or, or at least what we were thinking about addressing um, in, in, our, in a spin-off uh, is basically um, uh, where does this high, uh, where does this kind of X return comes from and uh, whether, for instance, the, one of the contributing factors is really uh, the risk perception of investors and, um, and maybe their exorbitant um, fear of kind of, uh, so, so they're, 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 so I mean, there's a literature on, on so which, which tries to explain, um, access or that tries to explain um, the excess returns not only by fundamental, but also, for instance, by um, uh, the, uh, the risk per perception of creators, which is mainly driven, for instance, by, um, for instance, yeah, consumption stocks or, or um, a different kind of um, big disasters, or which, or which is big disasters, as for instance, um, recessions or also um, um, other kinds of rare disasters and. Uh, one possible explanation for for these high excess returns might be that uh, these um, investors fear especially these kind of events, right? So that they have in mind um, the defaults of, for instance, Argentina or Russia, or that they um, that they bear in mind um, uh, the frequent or uh, the default history of countries like, for instance, Ecuador or Argentina, and um, that due to these uh, due to the history, or to use history of uh, frequent defaults, that uh, investors build up a more uh, risk-averse attitude uh, towards this asset classes and um, ask for a higher price. Let's um, let's take a short break, and then if we can pick up there when we come back, I think um, uh, that would be um. That would be terrific. And I had a, an additional question I wanted to ask about some aspects of the paper. But let, let's take a really short break for now and, um, and come back after that. So Josephine, 
we're back, obviously. Um, I had a little bit of sound uh, glitch, and so I cut you off there towards the, the end of your comment. Uh, I'm sorry about that. I'm hoping you can um, finish, uh, finish your train of thought. And then um, after that, I have a, a question about a, a different aspect of the paper. But um, uh, I think you were, you were um, going to say a little bit more about the sort of question of whether what might be going on in these markets to explain the, this excess yield. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Uh, so um, what I maybe just wanted to add, uh, another dimension or perspective on this high exit yield might be also that, for instance, um, that um, also not, that might be not only about like investors' perspective, uh, perspe um, perception on risk uh, or their risk attitude, but that it might be also a question on um, how, how, for instance, um, creators um, or investors uh, value, value uh, the, the threat of liquidity risk in this market, right? So what we, for instance, can see is that um, uh, during the 200 years, we see sometimes we could also observe quite extended and protected uh, sovereign default episodes. So for instance, uh, take the Russian default of um, 19, uh, 1917 or also um, the Chinese default um, after, after the Maoist uh, revolution, they all remained in, in, in default for, for, I don't know, 30, 40 years. And, um, uh, and the destiny of, of those investors was basically to be stuck in the market. Uh, since um, no one, since uh, there was, yeah, since no one wanted to buy these bonds, right? So basically, for for these countries, um, um, the market dried out, and um, and given given um, given this given the threat and given this not so low probability, it might be also the concern of uh, creators uh, or investors. That um, that they fear substantial uh, subs, uh, um, a, a substantial threat of liquidity, especially in the event of default, and especially when we see protected uh, default spreads. And because of this, it could be also that um, investors uh, where you uh, where you um, liquidity risk much higher than than they would maybe usually. But I think that might be something uh, which should be explored uh, probably in a different research project. So, so I find this, I, I find this discussion so so fascinating because you are quite appropriately identifying sort of um, as a research question uh, this deeper question about whether the the markets here are efficient or inefficient in important ways. And of course, as a, a non-expert, my armchair perspective is often, ah, I should just speculate. And it seems to me that um, there are deep inefficiencies in these markets. But I wanted to ask you about it. Um, uh, sort of another question implicated by your paper and another design choice in the paper that in a sense implicates uh, this, this same question about whether the market is efficient or not. And that's the choice to focus only on debt um, uh, denominated in a foreign currency. And just as backdrop, my sort of limited understanding of the, the research in this area is that uh, 
while as a lawyer, it seems to me that um, the risk of repudiation, or at least the ease of restructuring, which ought to be, if not the same thing, then closely tied, the ease of restructuring a domestic currency, and typically that would mean domestic law bond, is much greater than the ease of restructuring a um, foreign currency and foreign law bond. And um, yet we see relatively little pricing differences between uh, those two different types of instruments, which is sort of a deeper puzzle. But in your paper, you focus only on foreign currency instruments. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about why you make that choice. And then also, um, if I can get you to speculate a little, um, to, to maybe speculate on whether you think we would see a similar phenomenon with these excess returns in local currency instruments. Yeah, yeah, that's that's correct. So we basically focus on uh, on foreign currency bonds, and our choice just to focus on foreign currency bonds, or basically that we want to compare um, apples and apples. So right. So if we would have also included uh, sovereign domestic bonds or domestic currency bonds, then we would have bonds with different kind of, of risks. So, um, so for instance, um, uh, local currency risk or local currency bonds uh, would also bear a different kind of currency risk as for instance, uh, foreign currency bonds would do. And, um, and of course, you're also right that uh, if we would consider like, for instance, um, the entire population of bonds issued, then uh, local currency bonds make a big share out of this, right? But um, however, uh, for, most, for most countries, which we are studying, foreign currency bonds are basically, um, yeah, they are, ba are they basically only able to issue, um, or they are mainly only able to issue in uh, foreign currency foreign currency bonds and that's why we uh, we stick to uh, foreign currency bonds Josephine um, the, uh, hmm? sorry I didn't mean to interrupt you go on no it's basically just what I wanted to say that um, that uh, most so if you would I mean for for like for, for today or from from the 1990s onwards we um, our, our sample basically includes emerging market economies and, and these countries can refinance themselves basically by tapping international capital markets uh, but, and there they basically can issue foreign currency bonds and um, I think it's a quite new phenomena that uh, they also can issue uh, local currency debt and it's only in the last decade that the share of local currency debt which is issued internationally uh, has grown, right? So, that, so this, these are basically uh, the reasons why we have chosen um, to focus on foreign currency bonds. So it, the part of Mark's question that I want to uh, ask you again, that you uh, avoided, um, maybe intentionally, is do you think, because you know a lot about uh, the entire sovereign debt market, since I know, I know this from having worked with you, uh, what would your speculation be about what we would find if we look at local currency bond returns? Because uh, at least from my prior research, and if I look at uh, the paper that uh, 
our friends uh, Christoph and uh, Julian uh, did on uh, Euro area foreign versus uh, local law bonds, um, you know, the, the returns really seemed very similar, except very, very close to, uh, you know, the Greek default. So I would expect here, I, I will speculate, I would expect that actually the excess returns, if you take into account the risk that is inherent in a local law, local currency bond, the excess returns should be higher uh, than what you're finding in your uh, foreign analysis. Now, I know you're very careful and not willing to speculate, but please speculate with us. Yeah, so, um... I mean, what, what we did for the revision of our paper, uh, we actually try uh, to check how excess returns um, differentiate uh, or how excess return a bit of uh, local currency bonds differs from uh, foreign currency bonds. However, there's actually not so much uh, long run data out there for all the countries which we include in our study. And that's why at least for for a long term, uh, to get like a long run perspective on this, uh, we relied on the data of Jordan et al. And uh, there we find also actually that, but these are only advanced countries. Um, so this is probably um, the caveat I, I need to say, uh, where we uh, find an excess return of roughly 2% in comparison to our 4% uh, over the entire period. And, um, I mean, I would also expect actually that uh, uh, local currency risk uh, or that um, the risk of local currency bonds uh, would be higher. So that means basically that also the excess return would be higher. However, I mean, uh, the studies which are out there looking or actually uh, comparing um, local uh, comparing local currency, uh, local current the risk of local currency bonds and foreign currency bonds, they find actually um, yeah, the same. Also, like I don't know the, the study by Du and, and Schrager. I mean, they find, they also looked at emerging market economies, and they find actually that um, the local currency spreads as uh, as lower in comparison to their uh, foreign currency uh, counterpart. And they and and one of the explanatory factors they uh, offer is basically that uh, the default risk for uh, local currency uh, bonds is lower in comparison to, to the foreign currency bonds. Um, however, so what, what uh, at least what I read from the literature is that this kind of gap actually, um, that this kind of uh, gap um, became, become smaller over time um, since, um, and that, and the yield spread between, between both types of bonds actually narrow over time. And this is, and at least I think I read a study by the um, by the Bank of International uh, by uh, the Bank of International Settlements, and they they state that the contrib or contributing factors for this observable narrowing gap between the different yield spreads of both types of uh, um, bonds is uh, that we see a rise in foreign currency. Uh, uh, foreign foreign exchange reserves, um, which, for instance, makes foreign currency bonds less risky, and also that uh, governments actually can depend on um, 
domestic uh, dom uh, on on borrowing in in uh, local currency debt. And what might be also a third contributing factor is would be that um, that we actually before the pandemic uh, we saw a period of um, a rather uh, low global volatility. So right. So actually markets were quite calm. So, so um, the the um, your paper takes us from Waterloo all the way to 2016, which is sort of a mind-blowing accomplishment. But um, you have to stop at some point, Josephine, and, and the, the analysis stops at 2016. And I'm, since we've tried to get you to speculate um, with, with limited but not zero success. We've tried to get you to speculate. I want. I wanted to try again in a slightly different direction, which is to. Um, I wonder what you think about the present borrowing climate um, and whether it seems um, sort of incongruous given the findings in your paper, or whether um, it seems consistent with the findings in your paper. And I'm thinking in, it just in particular about the risks that the pandemic has created, the risks of, um, of default and restructuring, and the sort of terrible management or mismanagement of the pandemic in many countries. And yet, the, from my perspective anyway, the shockingly low yields um, that we still see globally, including in some countries that seem to have uh, Manage the pandemic terribly, like um, like Brazil, um, arguably India as well. Um, we see relatively stable and reasonably low yields. Do you have the sense that the uh, sort of the, the there's a difference between the present climate and the very very lengthy you know multi century period that you studied, or um. Or do you think that that we're we're still uh, we're still in a time when investors are are getting these excess yields? And just to add one thing that just I can't get out of my head that I think is consistent with what Mark is saying is Greece is issuing at negative yield. negative yeah yeah negative how's that even possible? <laughs> yeah, so. Um... So my sense on this would be is basically so if. I mean, of course, I mean, what we can, I mean, what we have observed in, in 20 or last year uh, was basically um, um, that, um, that this was a basically quite volatile year uh, for emerging market bonds, right? So um, we saw a very uh, sharp decline in the first quarter of um, 2020, and which was basically one of the worst uh, decreases in returns uh, for, I, I guess it was like uh, 20 years. So, um, however, what we also see, and, and that's, I think, is quite much in line with our paper, is that, um, that, this, um, that this drop in, in returns uh, were actually followed uh, by, um, by a very sharp increase again in returns. So that means that we, what we can observe is that re returns uh, rebound relatively fast after crisis, and uh, this is this would be also a parallel uh, to history, 
uh, as we can see, this kind of uh, fast recovery of uh, bond prices and returns, for instance, after um, a global crisis as, for instance, the Great Depression, but also partly um, after, after defaults. Um, so, so that might be um, just to uh, sketch a little bit like the historical parallels. And um, one reason probably, of course, I mean, these countries of especially emerging market economies, but yeah, but also advanced economies, they also uh, all experience high output shocks due to this kind of, due to the worldwide, worldwide pandemic, right? Um, but I think due to all these, um, due to all these uh, programs, um, um, at, um, governments and also central banks uh, promote, uh, prom um, um, launched uh, for promoting uh, for promoting um, uh, art for for um, for smoothen for smoothen the output shock. Um, I think um, basically, um, um, yeah, basic to these kind of massive. Um, monetary easing um, um, and therefore uh, monetary easing of central banks uh, in advanced economies. Um, um, the, yeah, uh, this leads basically, um, I would say, uh, what might be one contributing factor for the um, lower yields we can observe, for instance, uh, in Brazil or um, maybe also, yeah, for instance, in Brazil and maybe also what might, and another, Observation which might be in line uh, with these kind of reasoning is that, for instance, uh, what you just mentioned, um, the negative yield of Greece um, was basically, or we could observe uh, observe this basically after after the ECB announced that it will stick to its uh, asset purchases program. So, um, so that might be um, one. Um, one factor why investors still um, still value these uh, by investors still oh maybe why we can still see some kind of uh, quest for yield and so that they um, um, which leads to um, to to um, yeah. Josephine, uh, if I may, we, we're we've already taken up a great deal of your time, but I have uh, two uh, final questions, and you can choose whatever aspect of them you want to answer. But uh, one question that builds on your response to Mark's last question is: How do we really compare this excess return finding in the sovereign debt market to the findings in the equity market. And I'm trying to, uh, the papers that come to mind in addition to the Mara Prescott paper, I think you cited uh, papers by Campbell and I vaguely remember there's classic paper by uh, Bob Schiller. Uh, finding, uh, as I understand it, similar results uh, to what you find that if you look over a long period of history, uh, the returns are significantly higher than are predicted by the conventional uh, CAPM or no arbitrage uh, models. And, but the sovereign debt markets, as you just articulated, are weird. They're different. And 
what we're seeing right now is they're subject to so much manipulation by governments. Uh, so right now we have this massive infusion of money from the Fed and the ECB, and they just won't let the markets work in any uh, rational sense. And um, I'm wondering whether that impacts your results or whether the answer is that's why you had to look at 200 years of data to sort of smooth out the effects of uh, government manipulation, which occur all the time in the sovereign market. Uh, and the other question I wanted to ask you is, um, has to do with what next? I mean, this, this paper is so wonderful and intriguing, but as all good papers do, it opens more questions than it answers. And I, I say that as a compliment. And I'm curious, and I think Mark is too, as to what are the new questions that you and your uh, brilliant team are gonna be focusing on? Yeah, with regard to your first question, me too. Um, I think, um, oh, which also somehow relates to, um, um, which also relates somehow uh, to, to the second question is probably, um, to examine, uh, to examine, or to nail down more specifically, uh, what actually this kind of excess return, or how these, uh, which factors actually, um, um, or how, or by which factors this excess return is driven, right? So, um, and uh, yeah, excess return is, is driven, and um, and print, and going going backward to the uh, corporate bond literature that also or to the equity literature, which also finds these um, that find an excess return, which is not only explainable uh, by conventional models. Um, I mean, based on based on this kind of uh, equity uh, premium puzzle, um, and or oh, the answer of this was basically that. As I, as I already mentioned, that uh, one one factor might be also that there is a different risk perception of traders, and um, that um, there's a fear of um, experience rare disaster and uh, and experience uh, different kind of, uh, for instance, also income shocks, and um, and to um, uh, income shocks, uh, so that um, they request. Um, that they uh, request a higher, a higher um, premium. So, and uh, I think this can be, this might be can also be related uh, to uh, certain debt markets, uh, given that we also see um, that investors can also experience uh, income shocks by, for instance, holding this this asset classes when, for instance, the country um, goes into default. And um, so. Therefore, um, this might be uh, this might be uh, I think a very interesting spin-off. Why? Um, um, so, what actually explains this excess return and how big, for instance, is also the contribution of liquidity risk and credit risk? And is there some kind of um, and how? And is there some kind of time variant? Um, or and is a contribution, for instance, of liquidity risk and also default risk uh, time variant, uh, time variant, um, so that it changes over time. And for instance, is especially high in during during uh, during a debt distress 
or that, for instance, liquidity risk might be quite high during debt, debt distress episodes. And probably another question, which also might evolve out of this, might be um, so why why de why detour countries uh, also also actually pay um, pay these high excess returns, right? So or why do they borrow for these high for these high returns, or why they why why do they have have done it in the past? Um, and I think with regard to your question on. Uh, what insights can give us, like uh, can 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 give us the 200-year perspective? I think that's especially this one that we could that we still can. I think we need to um, consider defaults as rare events, and I think history can help us uh, to study much more um, uh, defaults and also find parallels between uh, different uh, different defaults. For instance, now. Um, default. So, for instance, we can compare today's situation to the default waves of the 1930s, but also, for instance, of the 1980s, and um, can try to draw lessons for nowadays out of, out of the past experiences. Well, Josephine, yeah. thank you so much for coming to join us. And um, all of these projects, all of your work is so, so interesting and so ambitious that I I expect it'll take a little while for you to get around to all of these projects, but um, even from our less sort of informed, uh, uh, less knowledgeable perspective, the work is super, super helpful and super interesting. And we are really thrilled that you were able to come join us. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs>